If you make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians on Sunday evenings, uh, began a couple of three weeks ago. There are two paths in life, two roads which lead to a destination. There's the path or the road of godly wisdom, which leads to life. There's the path, the roadway of worldly wisdom, so-called, which is a dead end. This evening's message is correctly titled, A Colloquy on Culture. Say, that's a fancy word. What's a colloquy? Well, a colloquy, from which we get the word colloquial, is a gathering of persons to consider a something, a, a specific consideration, to work through a, a specific consideration. When I was in seminary, many times in our courses, we would have a, 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 an a associated lecture. We were there already. Uh, we were in, in the zone, as it were. And we might be studying through the book of Romans, but the professor would have a colloquy on maybe infra-supralapsarianism. In other words, it's kind of adjacent to what you're studying, but it, it's something to give concentrated attention to. And so that's what our text is this evening. It's a colloquy, and it's one on our culture um, in light of biblical theology. So this message fits very nicely into our new church theme, in the world, not of the world, 1 Corinthians 1, 17 through 31 speaks much to that subject. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. And the context is, did, I, did God call me simply to baptize? And his answer is no. Verse 17, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be of no effect, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us who are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Gentiles foolishness. But unto them who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world, the things which are despised, hath God chosen. Yea, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. 
Now, as I shared a, a month ago in the introductory message uh, in 1 Corinthians, I'm going to uh, take uh, this book a little bit differently than I do most uh, expository preaching verse by verse through a Bible book. And we're going to take larger chunks of text. Uh, not going to typically uh, uh, deal with the minutia as much, frankly, because of the length uh, of the book. Chapter 15 has 58 verses. Uh, and, uh, and other chapters ha- are very uh, lengthy as well. And there's a lot of chapters. We would be here for a decade uh, in doing that. And that may or may not be beneficial. There is wisdom in doing that at times. And I'm doing that on Sunday morning in the book of Philippians, but it's only four chapters, and the chapters are short. So a larger chunk of text, if you will, and developing from that a particular, what is the thrust of that particular passage? And this passage is dealing with the so-called wisdom of this age, the wisdom of this world, the philosophy, the, the philosophical thrust of worldliness juxtaposed with true wisdom, which is only found in the Lord that he's revealed in his word. So, the first thing I'd like us to consider, those who follow divine wisdom are champions of or with conviction. In other words, there is bedrock truth to obtain. There actually is bedrock truth, fundamental orthodox theology in which one can have a conviction, yea, must have a conviction, and to be a champion of that. Proverbs 14, 12 tells us there's a way which seems right unto a man. In other words, there is worldly wisdom, but The end thereof are the ways of death. It leads to a dead end. The world believes it has the answer until caught in a contradiction, until there isn't any answer, until my world comes crashing in and I can only turn to the bottle or to pills or to pop psychology for the answer because I don't have any other place to turn. We who know and love and follow the Lord and know his word recognize God gives divine wisdom and he does it from his word and it's altogether different than what the world has. Now, four points on, on this text. First of all, verses 17 through 20, we see the power of divine wisdom. The power, God's wisdom is so powerful that it destroys the egotistical wisdom of man. Look at verse 19, if you would, where it very much uh, uh, says that. It says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. I will make it evident that what the world offers in contradiction to what the word says is just the fables of mankind. And it has gone on. It began in the Garden of Eden. Not not with man, but with Satan. Hath God said, challenging the word of God, the written word of God, uh, the spoken word of God in the the Garden of Eden, uh, as if there is a better way. And so by showing that man's theology, philosophy, psychology, morality don't work, the Lord is bringing to nothing those things. To those who are perishing, the message of the cross is foolishness. Verse 18 
tells us. But the redeemed have experienced resurrection power. How? By believing the message. By believing God's wisdom. Now think about this. Paul was, before he was Paul, Saul of Tarsus, was absolutely committed to the destruction of the message of the cross. He persecuted the church. He applauded uh, as uh, Stephen was stoned in Acts chapter 7. Um, and yet the message of the cross was so powerful that it transformed him. It transformed sinners into saints, persecutors into preachers. It transforms the depraved into disciples. It changed him. It changed me. There wasn't any uh, abracadabra, hocus pocus. No one bribed me. It was the message of the cross, the wisdom of God in the gospel for those who believe becomes the absolute turn upside down, inside out, change, transformation, which takes place simply by truly believing the gospel. Amen? That happened to you. That happened to me. And I wasn't even looking for it to happen to me. I didn't even know it could happen to me or happen to anyone for that matter. And yet it did. That is the wisdom of God, the power. Notice also the plan of divine wisdom. God knew man's wisdom was woefully inadequate to secure peace and joy and hope. And, uh, and, and certainly it couldn't secure eternal life. So God used the considered foolishness of what the world considered foolish to save those who would believe. Now, what did he use? Notice in verses 21 through 25 that um, by the foolishness of preaching, preaching there is not proclaiming. It's the word, uh, the, the root word logos. It's through the foolishness of the message. What is foolish about it? Well, once upon a time, uh, uh, the God of eternity put on human flesh. And he walked around saying things, reportedly doing miracles, and the masses hated him because he was misunderstood. And they killed him. And then his followers made up this story that he rose from the dead, and people are still following him today. <laughs> what a farce. That's the foolishness as the world sees it. But folks, that message transformed my life and transformed your life. It's the power of God. And that was God's plan that it change lives like that. In fact, verse 25 says that no matter how foolish it appears, no matter how weak it seems, God plan, God's plan is wise and powerful and is worthy of being communicated. Now notice, it was it was a stumbling block to the Jews because they would have said and did say, i.e. the Pharisees, you have to be as righteous as we are and we keep the law. We keep every, we cross every T and we dot every I. Do you measure up? Uh, in fact, Jesus raised it a bar. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, the people must have been aghast. How can we be more righteous than they are. Well, the fact of the matter is they weren't righteous at all. It was all human effort. And so that was a stumbling block to the Jews. 
And to the Greeks, it was knowledge that was most high. And yet, the message of the gospel is faith. Believing without seeing. What? That's foolishness. Of course you have to see. Knowledge is everything. And so, truly, uh, God's plan It was that it would be a stumbling block to unbelieving Jews. It would be foolishness to unbelieving Gentiles. But unto us who have received the message, it is life-changing. Now, that pushes right back into the face uh, with the philosophy and theology of our culture. Which leads the text into verses 26 and 27, the paradox of divine wisdom. Those people and things that mankind judges to be wise and mighty and noble are not on God's all-star team. They're rendered nothing as far as what their, uh, uh, the truthfulness of their message is. And what did God do? He placed this unfathomable treasure, not in a iron-proof uh, container, not in a bulletproof, uh, bulletproof uh, container, lead-lined. No, he placed his treasure in clay jars. <laughs> easily fractured, easily damaged. You and me. That's what, why? Because it's a paradox. That's not what one would think. When Messiah came, when the king came, he came as a lowly servant. Very vulnerable as a baby, because that's the wisdom of God. And so God's choice, verse 26, is not based on intellect, how wise you are. It's not based on influence, how mighty you are. It's not based on inheritance, how noble you are. It's based on what God has decided to choose, who God has decided to choose, and why did he do it. What is the purpose then behind this wisdom? Verses 29 through 31. One reason, his glory. You see, God is jealous for worshipers. He desires, demands, deserves, and delights in being singularly worshiped. Amen? The Ten Commandments, uh, uh, when he gave them to Moses, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You've heard me say this before. That did not mean no other gods in front of me. I'm first place in line and everybody else has to get behind me. No, no, no. That's not what that means. It means no other gods in my presence. There aren't any other gods. I alone stand uh, alone. I am the I am. And that is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. So... The, the argument in this text has been framed. There's divine wisdom and there's worldly wisdom, so-called. What does it look like in our culture? What's the outcome? Well, let me offer those who follow human wisdom live in a cosmos, a universe of chaos. Because if you don't stand for something which is absolute truth, then by definition, you'll have to fall for anything because you don't have a firm foundation. You don't have a solid footing and you're going to be tossed to and fro all over the place. And that's certainly an accurate assessment of the modern American culture. 
Some of you my age and older, you remember when the neighbor kid's parents believed like your parents believed in the sense of what is right and what is wrong. Anybody identify with that? You could not get away with stuff at the neighbor's house any more than you could at your house if you tried to. Not so. Uh, Our culture is utter chaos, and the world is as well. The prevailing philosophy of our day, uh, diametrically opposed to biblical philosophy and theology in every way, because our culture is anti-biblical in its philosophical position. Now, notice all the ways uh, in which our culture, uh, not not to just um, curse the darkness, but notice the ways in which our culture is philosophically anti-biblical on life. God says, I'm the creator of life. Life is sacred. I've created man in my image, the crown and glory of creation. And yet, our culture and many cultures in the world shriek out if you say anything against abortion. And I'm thinking, are you telling me you are a cheerleader for putting the end to a baby's life? Hello, doesn't that sound wrong? (laughs) And yet, on and on, they will cheerlead for that. And euthanasia, and and cloning, and genetic engineering, and medical ethics, and all the other hodgepodge of things, which has become a cosmos of chaos. How about this? Family. Well, we used to know what the family was. Now, there's every kind of agenda under the sun, from homosexual agenda, transgender, to anything and everything other than saying dogmatically and definitively that Man, a, man, a, a male who is born male is a man. A, a, a woman who not just born, conceived a, a, a female is a female. End of all gender. And this is what a family is. And this is what a marriage is. Oh, no. We'll tolerate anything except intolerance. We don't have any toleration for intolerance. Such hypocrisy. Uh, that is the chaos in which we find ourselves. How about the philosophical position on science? It's the way of creation, special creation, ex nihilo, out of nothing did God speak, and it was, or it is through billions of years of evolutionary theory. On morality, Anything goes. You know, if I had a mind to it, if I had enough life left and, uh, and I didn't want to waste years of money, I, I think I would propose uh, marrying uh, my pet parakeet and getting a license. And, and uh, when the official at the courthouse, I don't have a parakeet, by the way. <laughs> I'm afraid of them. <laughs> Um, stop me, would want to stop me, then I'm going to sue. And if I had a, a, a bottomless uh, well of money, I'll go, I'll keep appealing and appealing and appealing all the way to the Supreme Court. How can you marry your pet parakeet? Well, he gets to marry his friend, her friend, 
um, underage, age doesn't matter, gender doesn't matter. What's gender anyway? You see, you see the, the lunacy of such an argument? It's chaos. And I'm so thankful. Through no credit of any of us, of our own, we have a standard of truth. So we're not floating around in a cultural chaos. Oh, to be sure, we're, we're in it, but we're not of it. People do what is right in their own eyes because each person is a law unto himself. That sounds like me in my heart when I was lost. If I could get away with it, I was going to want to do it if I wanted to. In fact, Romans 1.22 describes this mindset as professing themselves to be wise, they've become fools. Why is it like that? Well, at least to a great degree, moral relativism is our cultural demise. Moral relativism. There are not any absolutes. There aren't any standards that are absolute. My standard is good for me. Your standard is good for you. What you believe is good for you. It's all equal. It's all truth and the like. And yet every educated person in the world knows that standards are required. You don't want someone to build a skyscraper without building codes. Building codes which, which must be drafted, studied, tested, adopted, and then enforced. You want to have proper building codes. Everyone who is rational in this world, lost or saved, recognizes that a society must have standards. And to ignore or to reject the standard is to set the stage for demise, for a disintegration of that culture. Folks, when a culture of moral relativism is the norm, then all philosophical positions are given credibility, and all that is certain is uncertainty. I don't know what is right. I don't know what to believe. I don't know which side to be on. And, of course, it ends in chaos and death. And so, a believer, those of us who hold to the truth of Scripture, in our culture, must know what he or she believes and why it is believed. Why I believe what I do. Why do I demand and will only uh, uh, celebrate a man and a woman being joined in matrimony? Why is that? Why is it that, uh, that I will be so rigid as to say, no, you, I, I, I don't tolerate crossing over that line, meaning I'm not going to applaud. I'm not going to say, Godspeed in something which is so unbiblical because if I don't and then, then, I don't, uh, then I don't have any convictions and I'm in that same chaos. A believer uh, must know what he believes, why he believes it. Everything in my life, everything in your life, think about this, should have, well, it does have a, a theological beginning point. When you extrapolate on the XY axis back to zero, zero, and you take off from there every action, every attitude, every activity, every acquaintance, every amusement, whatever you do or embrace, 
it has a theological root to it. And that's the case for everybody. It's either self-serving, anti-biblical, chaotic, or it is formed with biblical convictions and it is based on truth. And so either I'm going to be a champion of convictions or I'm going to be caught up in this cosmos of chaos and how effective I am with the gospel is going to matter how it plays out. So it's our cultural demise, moral relativism. What's the opposite? Well, what we, what we embrace, absolute truth. And by the way, uh, that sounds so self-serving and pious and arrogant. It's not absolute truth based on what I say is absolute truth. It's absolute truth according to the word of God. The Lord said, I am. Before me, there is no other. My word is true. The, the, uh, the gospel saves. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. There is a way. Walk in it. The ways of man are a dead end. So it's not because I believe that to be the case or say that to be the case any more than I say a, a, a ruler is 12 inches long. No, that's, that's a standard on which we all agree. Well, we're convinced that the word of God has uh, such, presents such a standard of God's morality and his philosophy. How do I respond? What am I to do with this text? And it's basically stating what we know is the obvious. The wisdom of the world is bankrupt. The wisdom of God is the only path for life and joy, fulfillment. What am I to do with that? How am I to act and react as a Christian in our culture? Now, I want to offer four real quick points that actually I, I, I got from uh, Al Mohler's book, Culture Shift, and how to respond in the midst of our cultural chaos. What am I to do about that? You say, preacher, I know, I know, I agree with all that. Uh, the Word of God makes it clear, but what do I do with that right now in, in 21st century America? What do young people do with it as they will be leaders in the coming decades. Here's one option. You can escape. I'm going to isolate from our culture. And the temptation for Christian families is to be like a football team, the God squad. We're going to have a holy huddle, a perpetual holy huddle, because we don't want the worldly darkness to contaminate us. There are those who have opted for that throughout time. And to be sure, parents, grandparents, you can do that with young people. I strongly recommend not doing that because even if you form a holy huddle for the years they're growing up, having a holy huddle does not in and of itself change a heart. You can't isolate a person into the family of God. And nor does it uh, follow the admonition of being in the world and not of the world. Oh, to be sure, we're supposed to be in the world shining the light. So forget about escaping. Really, it's not even a a genuine possibility, uh, but it's what some might think. How about this? I'm not going to escape, but I'm going to evade. 
uh, I'm just going to, you do your thing, neighbor, coworker. I'll do my thing, and you're not going to affect me. I'm not going to affect you. Uh, and of course, that isn't real life either. Because scripture says evil company does corrupt good morals. And that we are the salt of the earth. We are children of light. We will or we are to shine the light in the eyes of the lost. So I can't do that either. How about this? Some believers would say, I need to embrace the culture and infiltrate it. That is the poor judgment of this millennia, this century, if you will, the, uh, the 21st century, the third millennia, A.D., of saying, I'm going to rub up next to the culture and maybe some Jesus will rub off onto them. It'll ooze out of me. And I'm going to be like them so that they can see I'm, uh, I'm one of the... One of the uh, tolerant ones. Of course, that's playing right into the hands of Satan. What kind of influence are you if you are no different than how they are? In fact, they're looking for an opportunity to accuse you of hypocrisy. What's the answer of what I'm to do? I'm to evangelize. I'm to walk around as a poster, living, walking poster board involved as salt and light in the world, not becoming like them, so that the world can literally see he's different. He doesn't speak like us. She doesn't react like my other friends. That family has love among the members, and they're generous, and they want to share. And of course, they've told me about everlasting life in Christ. And so on this colloquy, colloquy of culture, the world and its philosophy, its belief system, its chaos leads to a dead end. Scripture is clear on that and God wanted us to see it that way and to know. Even though what they're saying about what we believe, it's narrow, it's intolerant, it's motivated by love. We love him and we love others for the cause of Christ because he first loved us. Truly, that's why it's, that's why it's motivated by love. The anguish that ought to be upon our hearts when we contemplate a lost neighbor friend, family member, being tormented eternally in hell. It ought to be palpable. And I'll be the first to say, uh, sometimes it's greater, sometimes it's less in my own heart. But that ought to be how, the the norm, because we are otherworldly. We're not of this world. We're of a higher, uh, eternal world, uh, where Christ is king. And so, get in the culture. Don't be of the culture. Proclaim the good news. 
Some will reject with animosity. Some will blow you off as being a fool. But there are some who will believe. You believed. Others will also believe. And will be used of the Lord in our day for the cause of Christ. Lord, I'm thankful for your word. And you have made it this way. So that he that glories, let him glory in the Lord. God, you've done this. I didn't save me. I didn't even know that I needed to be saved until you came upon me, until the word, the message of the gospel was shared. And now, because of that, because my life has changed, I'm compelled to want to tell others, move in our hearts, Lord, toward that end for, for each one of us so that glory would be brought to your name for you alone are worthy. Have your will and way accomplished in our lives. Burden us with the faces of the lost around us that we know. And open the door, Lord, Protect us from the tendency to blow a door open ourselves, because we know that unless you do it, we just labor in vain. But it sure seems that you want to do that, that you want the message of the cross, the gospel, to be so alive in our own lives that we'll be quick to share it with those who are drifting through this world without an anchor for their souls. Use your word to equip us, to challenge us, to convict us by your spirit, to be children of light practically. We are that in Christ. May we practically live that out in this day. Lord Jesus, in your glorious name we do pray.